This week's episode of Probably Science is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. It's the perfect time to sign up for The Great Courses Plus, and our listeners can check out any course or lecture for free today if you visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Can everyone hear everyone? Because we've had issues once before with this platform where if, if everyone just speaks in turn. Andy, do you want to say something? Hello, I'm Andy. Gotcha. Uh, hi, I'm Jesse. Gotcha. Nice. All right. Sweet. Okay, great. Everyone can hear everyone. Just to fill you in on who's who then, I'm Matt. Andy is the other regular host of the show. Jesse was the host of uh, the third host of the show for a while and then went off and then had to go off to Nashville to be treated for thankfully now in remission colon cancer. Oh, wow. And is now the host of the Jesse versus Cancer podcast. So yeah. it seemed. My- Silly Got- not to bring Jesse back onto the show when we're doing a cancer-specific episode. Well, amazing. Yeah, I mainly wanted to talk to someone else that has learned how to monetize cancer because <laughs> uh, Kat and I have both um, really spun this into gold, and I connect with that. Yeah. So I've won- <laughs> I, I, I'm going to plug that into the beginning of the episode anyway because yeah. it seems a waste not to have that. Probably science. Welcome to Probably Science. It's a cancer special episode. Woo! Yeah, we like to do cancer yay! episodes from time to time, so uh, we have brought back on the show former host Jesse Case, now host of the Jesse vs. Cancer podcast. For anyone who's more a recent addition to the show, you might need some catching up that Jesse had, was it stage four can- ass cancer of the ass? Stage four ass cancer of the ass, yes. Uh, thankfully in remission. But thankfully it, treated and is back in and is now the host of the jesse versus cancer podcast that's true but this is offensive that you guys have brought me back for the cancer podcast because i've i now i'm wondering why you brought me back for last week's asymmetrical penis podcast <laughs> <laughs> because i feel like now you guys are are you specifically targeting things about me you know what i mean i, I it's just it just seems it's, it's pure coincidence i don't know what you're getting at jesse. all right fine uh so jesse <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry cat i'm sorry everybody it's, I, it's fine you some, may lower sometimes the tone. <laughs> sometimes the cancer should win uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the reason the reason apart from the fact that we love having jesse back on the show that we have jesse on is that our, our main guest in this episode is cat arnie who is the author of the new book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution, and the New Science of Life's Oldest Betrayal. Hey, Kat. Hello. Thank you for having me on. It's an absolute joy. Oh, we've, I, I'm glad. We, we, we were meant to get you on for one of your... You've written a bunch of science books, and also you were the... Um, uh, you worked for Cancer Research uh, UK, the cancer charity in the... Was it the publicity, PR, outreach department? The telling science, people science what the deal comms, you know, science, science comms. That's the correct word Bit for it. Formal, yeah. That shows you how. But that shows you how like off science we are, because technically that's what we are, and I don't even know the word. That's <laughs> how far from real science comms we are. Wow, you did. I all know. Right. What's the what's the what's the word thing for the thing now? That's that's pretty much the theme of our show. The sciencey talkingy thingy things. Yeah. So cat. So that job entails you. You break down. Uh, you know, I would assume very complex things for the general public. What What is the SciCom job with cancer? Yeah. So I uh, I left cancer research in. I left cancer research UK in 2016. But yeah, I was there for about 12 years. Wow. Doing quite a. I know, right? Totally institutionalized. But I did a range of stuff. So I did, used to work with things like the marketing team. So when you'd get the, the stuff through the door that most people would, alas, throw straight in the bin that says, you know, here's some really great science. Here's what's going on. Give us your money. I did a lot of public speaking. So honestly, when you've sat in a room full of like 80 year olds to try and explain cancer research, you can pretty much explain it to anyone. 
Uh, and then I was also really involved in the charity science blog. I set that up with a writer who's now reasonably famous. His name's Ed Yong. Uh, he used to work uh, alongside me and my colleague Henry, and we set up the Cancer Research UK science blog. So, you know, yeah, we did, he's, wow. did that he's for He's big on the whole time. Twitter these days, what with us being in a pandemic. Yeah, you know, I mean, he's, he's an all right writer, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, so now he, with a bit of the cough going around, people are... Uh, yeah, people have taken to Twitter. Well, that's yeah. very, that's very cool. I um, love the the book. I'm gonna full disclosure. Um, when we have authors on, um, I always get the book forwarded. I've never read the book. I always <laughs> just say I've read the book, um, but I've actually read this book because uh, it relates to me, and I'm selfish. So, so um, I I love this book. So, thank you for writing it. First of all. Thank you. Yeah, it's always tough to know um, how something's going to land with people who have cancer, because I think like when you when you work inside an organisation or you sort of surround yourself with the science of it and, and talking to researchers, not only do you get a bit of a gallows humour about the whole thing, but sometimes you can just get so nerdily into the details. And it's always like step back because there's a lot of people here who are battling this disease and you know you, you've got to be careful about how you talk about it so I'm really glad that it, it landed well with you oh it landed great with me and I've and I've always found um I and I think it's just my own anxiety about things for me learning as much as I can about a subject makes it easier to deal with and also I mean one of the big themes of the book is that it's not personal it's just genetic anarchy um yeah. so I never personalized cancer like it's this evil monster it's just a it's just a mishap right exactly. so yeah. yeah so existentially i was very much on the same page um as the book so yeah i think it i think it reads uh, very well well that's the myth that i really wanted to bust was this idea that you know cancer is some like modern human disease that it's just down to stuff that we do that's wrong and our bad toxic lifestyles or that it's something that you've done wrong and it's really this idea that it kind of just emerges out of our multicellular bodies. And yeah, that's things we do that don't help. But even if we were all absolutely, you know, spot on, obeyed all the guidelines and everything, cancer would still be there because it's basically just an emergent biological property driven by the fact that we're multicellular and our bodies obey the bloody laws of natural selection. So, you know, blame Darwin. You can blame Darwin. But that was one of the first things in the book that was surprising was how rare cancer actually is considering the numbers games involved it's not actually it's more surprising that we're not riddled with cancer it's mind-blowing yeah yeah and i i did a talk the other day and i sort of you know i, I go through all the examples of cancer across the whole tree of life you know it affects many many almost all animal species with a couple of exceptions and it goes back way deep into evolutionary time but actually when you look on a personal level Although cancer is very common on a population level, you know, in the UK, certainly one in two people will be diagnosed with cancer at some point in their lifetime. It's actually on an individual level, incredibly rare. It's like winning the world's shittiest, shittiest jackpot. You know, it's like <laughs> your, your chances are one in 10 with 14 zeros after it because of all the cell divisions, all the mutations, all the changes your cells pick up. Like that really blew my mind discovering that basically by middle age, we're just all a patchwork of mutation. Like, all our cells are a bit messed up. And out of that, we kind of muddle through and only, you know, we'll maybe develop one, maybe two actual cancers in our entire lifetime out of those billions and billions of cells. And so, you know, we should be celebrating that. But mostly we, we kind of get through. Yeah, no, it's it's mind blowing to me how um, deep in your chromosomes these mutations can be and how most of them don't matter. Uh you know, it's it's just you're just all screwed up. Your cells are all messed up and it does, and your body just gets on with it. I think it's pretty amazing. Yeah, that was a really interesting discovery. That that was the stuff that properly blew my mind. It was research that came out a couple of years ago because we've only now got the techniques where researchers can really kind of go in and look in depth at tiny pockets of cells and go, all right, what mutations are in here? What changes are in here? And previously, we'd only ever done that with cancer cells because you know people are like well you're going to look at the stuff that's wrong right you know look at the cancer look at the tumors and um and these researchers at the sanger institute were like yeah well has anyone done this for normal cells and it's like well why would you do that you know they're normal 
And then they went and looked at them. It's like they're absolutely peppered with mutations. So by by the time you get to middle age, yeah, like half your cells have got mutations that if we found them in cancers, we'd say that that was a cancer mutation. And that that's like just incredible to me. Now, have you yourself done any genetic testing like for BRCA or anything? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, it's, uh, it's, pretty it's pretty fun. It's pretty fun. Yeah, I'd, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not something that I do, but I have a good friend and I talk a bit about her story in the book um, that she, her family has a history of breast cancer. So she got BRCA tested and discovered that she carried the, the gene and she was just about to book herself in for a mastectomy and then she discovered she had breast cancer. So it's like, oh, oh wow. nuts. Yeah. Like just should have managed your diary a little bit better. Um, wow. But she's doing very well now as well. So, uh, so yeah, she's doing good. It's good so to hear. You, your, P, your PhD was in uh, genetics, right? Developmental genetics. Yeah. And it's interesting how much the genetics has to do with the risk of cancer compared to environmental factors. Like, that was one of the more surprising things in the book. Well, there's something quite subtle going on there, actually, because I think... If anything, we've become really overly genetically reductionist about what cancer is and how it works. And we sort of got to the point where we can look at a tumour and just get this kind of genetic shopping list or like a bingo card of all the mutations that are in there. And I think we've become overly fixated on the genetics. And yeah, so obviously, you know, things in our environment don't help. They do increase the the rate at which we get mutations in our cells you know smoking obviously you know you're loading the the mutational gun and peppering more mutations into your dna so that's not a great idea but there's something deeper going on about the tissue and like the health of your tissue and so there are environmental factors involved in that one of the interesting ones is maybe the role of inflammation in keeping your tissues kind of nice and buff and healthy particularly when you're younger and that stops these rogue damaged cells getting out of control so it's not necessarily like oh there's no environmental component or it's it's all genetics it's like it's not all genetics it's not all environment. It's kind of this emergent evolution of the two. And, and that's the same with evolution of any species. You've got like the ecology and the genetics. You've got like the, the space and the time and the environment and the genes. And it all comes together. Right. And that's, again, that's another one of the big themes of the book. I know we're sort of bouncing all around the book right now. And we, uh, I'll double back Just in a second. Just read the book. But Tell everyone to read the book. Read the book. Read the book. It's all there. But that's here's, Rebel here's a... Cell, everybody. Rebel Cell. All right, everyone. Ken we'll Arnie. see you next week. And, uh... <laughs> and we're done. But um, thinking about cancer as just part of the sort of biological environment of the body and how it's just this sort of body ecosystem that cancer is just a part of is a very interesting way to think about it as a disease and as a condition rather than just this sort of this thing that's in you yeah it's we sort of have this idea that cancer is something sort of alien or like that that's visited upon us or even indeed that it's just one rogue cell that that's just growing and growing out of control but yeah we've and we've got to this very like i say a very genetic reductionist way of looking at cancer as let's just look at the cancer cells and look at the mutations in the cancer cells and that must be what's wrong rather than saying well what was the environment here you know like a tumor you think oh a tumor is just made up of cancer cells right it's like it's mostly not even cancer cells there's all sorts of stuff in there there's there's immune cells and there's these cells called fibroblasts so there's all this like molecular glue and stuff in there sometimes there's fingernails you guys ever see those videos oh <laughs> Jesus, no. Oh God. oh, God, no. Oh, yeah. I'm just so I, I'm just going to say, I do not talk about teratomas, which I think is what you're talking about in the book. Okay, you've got a these... hard line. You've got a hard teratoma yeah, line. Uh, right. a very hard line about teratomas. Um, Fair. J- just Google for it. Don't, don't Google for it, but like not just after you've eaten. Sure, um, I respect your boundaries. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's a hard, hard no. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, you, you've got to think about like, the environment and the ecology and we we're so used to studying cancer by basically just like mashing up this stuff and throwing it through a dna sequencing machine and you miss all the detail and the the kind of the patchwork of clones and cells and mutations and the immune cells and the sort of landscape within there so there's some really cool stuff now going on with microscopy like you know very old discipline of pathology of like just staring down a microscope at stuff but now we can use things like AI and image, uh, image analysis to actually start to really paint a picture of the map, the landscape of cancer. And so I think that that is very, very, very cool. And kind of bringing the genetics together with the ecology is, is really exciting. 
right, there was someone you mentioned in your book who'd actually hacked Google Image Search to help with cancer uh, detection, right? Yeah, so this is some of the stuff that's going on. So um, with with images now, you can take an image down a microscope of uh, a tiny thin slice through a cancer. And it does look like a map almost. You can see like the rivers of the blood vessels and little pockets of different sorts of cells. And it's it's really incredible to watch these. But these are all now digital image files and incredible resolution digital image files. And so, yeah, there was a team, I think they were from New York, and they basically used one of Google's image analysis algorithms to say, well, can we actually start to pick out what might be genetically different among these little different pockets of cancer cells just by looking at the image, because that's really key. So as well, one of the the myths to bust is that once you have a tumour like or a cancer, all the cells are the same in it. All the cancer cells are the same. So if you give a treatment, they're all going to die from that treatment. And that is simply not true. Cancers, like all of us, are, are a patchwork of mutations. And so you really, really need to understand what this diversity of all these little species of cells is like in the environment they're living in to understand how they're evolving and how they're going to respond to treatment and what they're going to do next. Do you think it's, it's too vague of a term, the term cancer? Um, um, given yeah. that it's just a reality we all live with. Some, I mean, you know, anyone could get a CEA count in their blood work and, and will find cancer, any of us right now, and your body just takes care of it daily. Yeah, so this is that's a really interesting philosophical point. And I sort of touch a bit on it in the book. So not just like, what is cancer, but when is cancer? So what is the tipping point? And, you know, this is long known that, for example, when they've looked at victims of road traffic accidents, and you do like whole body autopsies on people who look perfectly healthy, you know, never had a cancer diagnosis, you will find little tumours. And, you know, most men will die with prostate cancer, but not of prostate cancer. Now, many women, many women by middle age have like, you know, little lumps and bumps in their breasts. And this is why I think it's a terrible, terrible idea. You know, sometimes you see like MRI scanners, people like, yeah, everyone should get an MRI scan of their whole body every couple of years. It's like, hell no, (laughs) I do not want to know what's in there because we're just full of like weird lumps and bumps. But then what is the tipping point that turns like kind of sad cells into bad cells. And it does look like there's some kind, that's the key thing, like that phrase while I was researching the book, it's like, what turns a sad cell into a bad cell? And that's where the sort of rebel cell comes from. It's like, there seems to be some kind of tipping point that's like a chromosomal catastrophe of some sort. Like maybe the division process doesn't go right and you end up with a double set of chromosomes and that's real like fuel for evolution. Or you get this process called chromothripsis, which is a great word, um, good hand in Scrabble, uh, chromothrixis, where um, <laughs> basically the uh, the chromosomes kind of get shattered and then just stitched back together in any kind of way. And you get this kind of chromosomal catastrophe happens. And that seems to be what turns a cell that's got, you know, some mutations. It's seen some things, you know, it's, it's some, <laughs> some stuff happened sure. to it into something, into a cell that's like can really start to accelerate its evolution and, and start going for it. Wow. I know, right? It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but it's that is, awful. Yeah. That's interesting. What's your favorite? Oh, all right. Let's nerd out. What's your favorite chromosome? Lay it on me. <laughs> Lay it on um, me. Um, uh, I mean, I think as a good feminist, I have to say the X chromosome because it is okay, really cool. Okay, fair. Um, fair. Yeah, it's massive and it's cool. Uh, but yeah, also chromosome... Uh, no, I think I'm just going to go for the X chromosome. Yeah. <laughs> okay, see, I'm not a fan of 2, 3, or 16, personally. Um, I'm against them. Uh, anything involving uh, anything involving your butt, you know, the butt chromosomes, I'm not into it. Um, I, I also, you know, I, I like an underdog. So, like, 22 is, is so wee and little. Um, and oh, I do absolutely. Have a, 22, I do yeah, have not... a soft spot for the Y chromosome because it goes missing so often. Like Y chromosomes just get lost all the time. Really? And, uh, yeah, yeah. And that's that's an. Int- I do sort of mention it at, at one point. I think like Y chromosomes do get lost. And if you look, for example, in the like you take the blood of a uh, someone who's genetically it's more, male, more like where chromosome? Huh? Yeah, it's like whoa, WTF chromosome? It's just gone. Yeah, guys. Um, it's so small, it gets lost. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, well, I didn't realize un- it, until your book that we didn't know how many chromosomes there were until <laughs> relatively recently. 
<laughs> I love this story so much. Yeah, I um I do a genetics podcast called Genetics Unzipped, and this is one of the stories. So I uncovered this story while researching the book, and I was like, I have to make a podcast episode about this. And it's it's the case of the missing chromosomes, and it's got me doing a very very bad American accent in it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so in the early twentieth century, there was this guy who um he was looking at uh, sperm. And so he's cutting like tiny, tiny slices of testicles to like count how many chromosomes there were in sperm. And he counted 24. So it's like, right, double that. So humans have 24 pairs of chromosomes, 48 chromosomes. And he, you know, got a picture showing this. There was photographs showing 24 chromosomes and it was in all the textbooks and everything. And it wasn't until I think 1956 that some researchers, um, Johin Cho, actually took a proper photo and they had the techniques to actually show that humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes. So it's, it's like 46 chromosomes, not 48. So by the time that Watson and Crick were like writing about the structure of DNA, we didn't actually know how many human chromosomes there were. But it's this amazing like scientific group think where everyone was like, other researchers were counting them and they were going, I... I really think we've only got like 46. And they, and they were like, no, but that guy said there were 48. You've probably just miscounted or lost them. Um, <laughs> and so everyone was like, oh, no, yeah, there's, there's, there's 48. Yeah, yeah. And then finally, these, these guys took the photos and were like, no, it was 46. You're all morons. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, who, whom amongst us hasn't miscounted our testicle slices? <laughs> I, 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 I'm constantly doubling the chromosome. It's, it's every morning when I do my count, it's wrong. Yeah, you've just got an extra testicle down there. <laughs> you just spent it for a while. You're just artificially inflating your numbers there, Jesse. <laughs> well, it's insider trading, really. I, um, my my uh, genetics podcast, uh, Genetics Zipped Back Up, um, <laughs> which airs at the same time as Cats. Um, I talk about this. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, should, should we stop talking about testicles? Would you rather talk about testicles or cancer? I let's get both. back on to... Well, yes. I don't think yes. we want to ask Jesse this. Cause Good segue. Good segue. You're torn between his two big loves. But... <laughs> well, three. Three, I guess. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, man. You guys are horrible at keeping secrets. Don't make me regret my life choices by coming on the show, guys. <laughs> no, it's a great show. You love it. You're having fun. <laughs> I, that's... <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> it's non-consensual yes, yes, podcasting. What's happening? <laughs> so let's let's get onto the part of cancer that I think everyone wants to know about, which is the treatment or lack of treatment or potential treatment. Mm, what do you want to know about it? I, if I eat sharks, I will become immune to cancer. Correct? Oh God! Yeah, that's the oh that that is definitely a myth that I really wanted to bust in the book was this whole like sharks don't get cancer and that's why we should eat shark cartilage because then you won't get cancer. It's like no sharks do get cancer. Loads of sharks have been reported to get cancer and there's a lovely quote from the marine biologist David Schiffman. It's like eating something that doesn't get cancer even if that if even if they didn't get cancer eating it wouldn't make you immune to cancer any more than like me eating a, ba a basketball player would make me better at basketball like that's, that's just like that's not how it works worth, so, yeah, worth a try uh, always worth sharks, a try sharks you know. not a valid cancer treatment i'm afraid as i put down my jordan drumstick yeah, what's that yeah. Uh, none of none of that works i'm but, yeah i'm i'm constantly amazed at how um I don't know when we decided that scientifically we're just in the modern era. It's like we made this – I don't know if it's when electricity became like became everywhere. I, I don't know. But we're constantly – and you see it right now with the pandemic. Um, just so much medieval thought. Like, like the idea – I mean it blows my mind. The idea of like eating something that is supposedly immune to cancer – even though it isn't, could create immunity in you. You could tell me that was from the 1200s and I would believe that, you know, was a theory. Yeah, I mean, I've been so interested in the history of cancer quackery. So when I was at Cancer Research UK, I was kind of the resident alternative medicine and quackery and pseudoscience uh, and conspiracy kind of um, guru, because I'm just fascinated by where these things come from. And there's stories from like the Daily Mail in like 1900, like boasting about all these quack cancer cures. And then the researchers from Cancer Research UK in 1904, just writing about like, this doesn't work. And it received a much larger audience by being written about in the Daily Mail, like, yeah, 
still wow. doing that 100 years later yeah it's it's absolutely um and it's interesting i was doing a talk the other day and someone said it's like why do you get cancer quackery and not like heart disease quackery and i think it's because you know it's it's a drawn out disease in many cases you can see the manifestations and certainly before there was really good surgery it's like well you know what what can you do and it's the kind of thing where where quackery is just just absolutely rife um, and, and it's it's old, old, old as well. Like the same, you hear the same kind of tropes and things that that it's like uh, it's because you haven't lived well enough or healthily enough, or in in olden days it'd be like you've you've offended the gods in some way. So yeah, it's it's an interesting one to look yeah, at in history. Modern modern miasma theory or something. It's like mm. people have um, so many people told me. Let me think. When I first got diagnosed, I started keeping a list of, and these are people that I've always thought were smart. <laughs> um, were, were emailing me insane things about um, the type of sort of electrolyte water I should be drinking, oh. um, you know, to starve the cells or something. And it's just none of it makes any sense. Well, I, th- I, think, um, I think Google probably contributes to like the sort of WebMD effect. Like everyone thinks because all the world's information is available, I have it in my brain automatically. And therefore, there's no experts. I'm an expert in everything these days, you know, so... Mm. That's my theory, at least, about why everybody has, thinks they have the answers to everything now. Maybe I don't know, man. I mean, the, the horoscopes are in the newspaper. It's like I'm not I, sure. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure I, we're that advanced. No, we're not at all. Yeah. <laughs> but you sort of look at where this comes from, and and you know, I, I start the book with the fact that half of all people treated for cancer today will survive for at least ten years, and it's like you know, that's a glass half full. That's really great. But, you know, that still leaves a glass half empty. And you know, we're not great at treating advanced cancers and, and some types of cancer. And you're like, yeah, so if modern medicine doesn't have anything for you, you you're going to try and look elsewhere. And you know, that's what I really wanted to address in the book is like, why do these fancy, fancy, super expensive new drugs? You know, we're told there's new drugs, holy grails, silver bullets, magic bullets coming out all the time. And why are they not? bringing cures and that that's really what i wanted to to dig into in the book because you're very yeah. careful to sort of avoid big pharma conspiracy theories while also laying out a fair criticism of big pharma and the techniques that they use to get a new drug onto the market because it, it amazed me that the criteria for this is a, mar- a new drug that can be approved up are remarkably small it's just like it can own it maybe only has a was it there was one drug that has a 10-day improvement on prognosis exactly and it's like these the a lot of these really really expensive new drugs and they're they're targeted molecularly so you you test the cancer and they're they're designed against like these sort of faulty molecular targets that you find in there and they're incredibly expensive and when you look at the actual benefits in terms of survival, sometimes it's weeks, sometimes it's months, sometimes it's like single digit years. The sort of exception is the new immunotherapy drugs. They stimulate the immune system to recognize and destroy cancer. And some of those for a small proportion of people do seem to be curative. So, But again, they don't work in everyone. They work in like fewer than one in five people. And so it's like, well, these again are not cures for everyone. And you even mentioned the fact that because these drugs are increasingly specific that means that the sample size used for the statistical analysis becomes smaller and smaller yeah there's all sorts of issues that i outline with the current clinical trials process sort of using surrogate endpoints you know instead of using actual like did people live longer um because often with some of these drugs you're treated for them and you have remission and it all looks great and then the cancer comes back and it's like well did, did that person actually survive longer than they would have done if they'd had a different treatment? And so there's lots of kind of sleight of hand that goes on. And there's, you know, I, I sort of don't want to go into it in too much detail, but there's there's a lot digging into, you know, how companies are only looking for the same kind of targets as well. That sort of not hashtag me too like that, but that sort of me too kind of targets. They're all going for the same sorts of things. And yeah, resistance just emerges and then you've got to try something else and then you're out of options. So, I, I, I've also found that our our diagnostic technology and treatment technology aren't increasing at the same speed. Like a CT scan, the resolution hasn't gotten that much better. I mean, the you know now they have a what 64 slice machine or something like that, as opposed to 12 when it first started or something. But it's still um, like when you say the cancer comes back, oftentimes it was just never gone. 
but they can't look at every cell. Yeah, um, exactly. So, so it grows back into range, but that isn't that technology has not progressed as fast as like immunotherapy development. Um, so I wonder, I wonder if we're getting this weird sort of faulty bump. I mean, in the in the long term, with with diagnosis, where things look good for a little while because it was a reduction. Just um, below the level of detectability. Sure, yeah. sure, because we can't really. It hasn't. You know, they don't. They're not parallel. Yeah, and this is the, this really highlights the problem of resistance. And so, because every cancer is basically once it's got to a certain size, it's a patchwork of little groups of cells that all have different mutations in. And when you think about this in the context of evolution, well, that's what you need for different species. You know, you have a species; all the individuals have slight genetic differences. You apply selective pressure, like a cancer drug. And there's going to be some in there that can survive. So the seeds of resistance are already in there. And so you get rid of all the cells that are sensitive to the drug and you just leave these resistant ones and they'll start growing again. And then your drug is not going to work again. And so I really wanted to look at like, well, where are the new ideas for treatment that aren't just let's throw another drug at this? And so, yeah, there's really, some really cool people down at the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa in Florida, and they're applying evolutionary theory and evolutionary thinking to trying to control cancer. And it's the same kind of thing that um, farmers use to control pests because you can't eradicate every single insect from your field. It's just impossible. Like you just end up nuking the field, like, you know, just napalm the whole thing. No more pests. But yeah. Um, And it's sort of a similar approach with cancer. It's like, well, just destroy everything. Uh, And you end up destroying healthy tissue as well. So can we try and like control these cell populations, assume that there's going to be resistant cells in there and then come up with some smarter strategies about how you apply the drugs, letting sensitive cells come back that will keep the resistant cells in check, this sort of game of clones going on. <laughs> and uh, there's some really, really interesting strategies in there, but because they're not another shiny, expensive new drug, they're kind of using the drugs we've got or even you know old drugs or drugs that are thought to not be as good using them in different ways, it's very hard to get people interested and excited about them. That also sounds like the kind of thing that would bump up against some of the conspiracy theorists because, you know, that very much is like, oh, they don't even want to cure you now. They just want to keep selling you the treatment for the rest of your life. Well, it it bumps against politics, too, for funding. Because, I mean, it's very hard to sell making a disease livable. That's a hard sell. Yeah. It's, not, um, it's not sexy. Yeah. It's not. It's yeah. not sexy. And we want and, a cure, right? Like, you know, we don't want right. to just like just put up with it. But and this is what I I think was getting to earlier with is it too vague of a term um, when someone says we will cure cancer? No, no, you won't. That's absurd. Yeah. Um, you, you know, that's too vague. You could you could maybe cure. Um, you know, you could find some sort of preventative something for a very, very specific type of cellular mutation, but, but you're going to stop cells from mutating uh, out of whack. That's, I mean, no, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's, a bit, there's this kind of like the narrative of the cure, and it's really driven cancer research for the past century. Like we're going to find the cure for cancer, and it's going to be like a cure, and it's going to be pills in a bottle or something like that. And it's really misled people. Because, yeah, that's what you get the money for. You know, Cancer Research UK's um, original mission was like, you know, together we will beat cancer, not together we will, like, learn to live with it. Um, But that is (laughs) probably for advanced cancers. Trying to think about it in a different way and trying to control it is probably the long-term strategy. I mean, I do talk a bit about, in the book, about actual extinction strategies. So rather than a cure, you're thinking about this again from an evolutionary idea, like driving this population of cells to extinction. So what are they vulnerable to? How can you change the conditions that make that population collapse rather than, like, let's just try and nuke it? Um, because that is never going to work. You know, the the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs, it didn't kill all the dinosaurs, because if I look at my tree outside, they're still dinosaurs. It's just that we call them birds, right? So, you know, you still get things that emerge out of these big catastrophic attempts. But if you do enough things in the right way, you can drive species to extinction, because, you know, that happens all over the world every day. So how do we understand, like, the evolution, the ecology of these cells, and just, like, extinct the little buggers? 
that is right. an in- that's a better way of thinking about a cure, I think. Well, so you know, I for for instance, uh, you know, some would say smoking cigarettes causes cancer. But I say it's global warming for the body. It's extincting. <laughs> what we're doing is we're making we're making these cells extinct. You know, who knows how much cancer has been killed because of cigarettes? We we don't have those answers. So, you know, uh, I I wouldn't endorse that. Uh, I'm just just gonna say. So yeah, that's right. the big takeaway from Cat's book. That is, everyone yes. should smoke, and uh, yeah. the book is now available. That's Rebel Cell by Cat Arney. <laughs> smoke cigarettes. Uh, no, Cat Cat obviously does not endorse my uh, horrible ideas. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's so what do you think the balance is there between the, you know, obviously preventative early detection, that's the whole game, at least as we're thinking of it currently, but then the danger of that, you know, um, of you can't get an MRI every few years, you know, of Mm -hmm. course, Um, that's just a bad, at some point you're causing more cancer than defeating, you know. Yeah, well, you're picking up these or, like small tumors that aren't ever going to be a problem in your own lifetime. So, you know, there's a huge risk there, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it kind of comes back to the the idea of like, what is cancer and when is cancer? So it's trying to find those markers that like, yeah, these, the, these cells are really bad, like sort of the tigers from the pussycats or whatever. So it's actually having better markers, whether that's of like tissue or of um, genetics that you can look for, say, in the bloodstream or something like that. So the, right. the genetics is still important, but it's actually really understanding that, yeah, cancer is going to emerge. And there's probably things that are picked up even today through screening, particularly things like breast screening, picks up a lot of these very, very, very early small cancers. And like, were they going to be a problem? We just don't know. There's some big research projects going on to find that out. So, you know, screening, you go like, yeah, screening, 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 screening for everyone. Are you picking up things that are actually going to have been become dangerous? You know, you kind of want the minority report for cancer, right? It's like, was this going to be a bad cell? Uh, and right now, I think we don't really have enough. I mean, some some cancer screening, I think, is really beneficial. I think there's good evidence on bowel screening. I think there's really, really good evidence on cervical cancer screening. Probably lung cancer screening for smokers is probably a good idea. Other ones I'm not so sure about. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't- I don't do health policy, so... <laughs> right, no, right, right. It's just, it's it's very, I think it's very hard with a lot of those things to probably to, like, we we find this a lot uh, on this podcast because it's, it's, you know, uh, scientists that are very, very smart people. So oftentimes there's a lot of uh, biting of the tongue when someone is not an expert on something else like health policy, but certainly the answers are obvious. Um, <laughs> so, you know what I mean? There's a lot of, like, I won't speak to that, but it's like, come on, everybody, come on. What are we doing? It's really, what it's really hard with screening because, like, you can look and you can say, yeah, we detect all these cancers, therefore we've saved this number of people's lives. And you're like, you're finding all these, you look at something like that the rate of prostate cancer, particularly in the US, where there's quite a lot of screening for prostate cancer, that you'd look at it and you're like, there is an epidemic of this cancer in this country. Like, oh my God, why are so many men getting prostate cancer? And you're like, you're screening and finding people who would have lived their entire life never knowing about this and it never being a problem. At the same time, you're also finding people who their cancer would have killed them. So, I mean, so we we do need to get a bit more sophisticated about it, I think. It's it's funny because like I don't I don't draw this analogy, but it's it would be easy for a person to draw an analogy between this and and Trump's argument that, that tests create <laughs> yeah, COVID. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not saying Can't that's find any COVID if you don't do any testing. Right? Yeah. Is there is there a, like a quick logical counter to to someone drawing that parallel? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so like cancer exists, it's real. Uh, COVID exists, it's real. I think the problem, I mean, so the thing is with, with cancer that's different is you don't catch cancer from other people. So you can have if you can sort of think about the idea of like, well, there's asymptomatic cancer, i.e. like you're going to have some kind of growth. It's never actually going to cause you a problem in your lifetime. Therefore, testing lots and lots of people, if they don't seem to have any health problems, is going to find these. And then you go, well, what do you do? We should treat them. And then treatments come with side effects and anxiety, like huge mental burden, as well as the physical side effects of the treatment. Whereas with something like COVID... Don't know what you're talking about. Oh, I know. I mean, I I, I am for you. The Um, the coolest. But with with COVID... (laughs) 
people who are asymptomatic, who don't have any symptoms but have the virus, they pass on the bloody virus. Right, yeah. So okay. that's right. the... Perfect counter, yep. That's, that's, that's the problem. <laughs> hey, just interrupting the conversation for a second to talk about our sponsor, if you're a regular listener to the show, you will know that we are frequently sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. They are a collection of hundreds, thousands even, of university-level lectures on just about, I mean, just about every topic, right, Andy? Pretty much anything you can think of. I know that's hyperbolic, but um, we've had pretty good luck with making up a topic, searching for it, and then finding a lot of lectures on it. Yeah, so I was bouncing around looking for something that might go with this episode, and I found, again, there's always a fit, The Skeptic's Guide to Health, Medicine, and the Media. Uh, It seems appropriate for a subject like cancer, which we've already mentioned on the show, is frequently the subject of all manner of incorrect uh, and pseudoscientific ideas and responses from both the mainstream media and should we say the less mainstream media sure the narrow stream i don't know what's <laughs> the, uh, the narrow stream media uh, the, this is bill, billabong media uh, uh <laughs> oxbow you know, lake the water cooler media yeah. the hey uh, my friend my, my friend said that this said uh, but this is taught by uh, a professor of pediatrics at the emory university school of medicine uh, and yeah it's 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 great the, the lectures cover i mean there 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 is cancer in there obviously there's a, a whole lecture on concussions and American football and medical oh, marijuana, which I, I had a long conversation with someone r- recently about cancer and marijuana and how they believe that marijuana is the only cure you need for any cancer. <laughs> uh, I'm I, guessing I, that's I'm guessing the Great Courses Plus would uh, d- dis- disabuse you of that um, impression. Yes, yeah, it does, yes. it does. Okay, and then our good. coffee and wine good for your heart. Again, the same newspapers that constantly tell you what does or doesn't cause or cure cancer are also like, you should drink coffee, you shouldn't drink coffee, you should have wine, you shouldn't have wine, and so on. Right. So, yeah. Is it okay to stop flossing? That was a story we actually covered on the show a while back. And that is flossing as in dental flossing, not the not dance. Not the dance. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Well, I've also been interested in skeptical views of things on The Great Courses Plus. I've been watching The Skeptic's Guide to American History, which is um, taught by Professor Mark Stoller of University of Vermont, who also holds a PhD in history from University of Wisconsin. As all these lecturers, they are, um, if not current professors, they are usually uh, former professors at esteemed universities, and they they know what they're talking about. So it's definitely a a worthwhile resource. They, they're definitely more accurate than a YouTube video you watched once. Yes, that is uh, true. That has some extra, some weird videographic effects on and uh, <laughs> tells you the truth that they don't want you to know. Uh, this is the truth that we do want you to know, yeah. <laughs> the actual truth. And you can, once again, a- access any of these lectures, all of them, all of them, for free if you use our sign-up code. So if you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably... You can get a free trial. And there's no reason not to. You can watch it on a set-top box on your laptop. You can listen to it in your car. You can treat it as a podcast, treat it as a, uh, as, as a video. It's, it's a great multimedia way to get solid information into your skull. So that, once again, is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Well, let's talk about the side effects and the, the risks of treatment as well, because that's a... a fair chunk of your book is that that's a big problem is that the treatment itself is harmful there was something jesse there was something you said in one of the early episodes of jesse versus cancer that i don't even know if you remember this line but it always stuck with me when you're talking about um you you can't call it a side effect if it's more likely than the intended effect oh yeah they they yeah they were breaking down what the um you know and i did a full fox series so oxaliplatin, arenatecan, 5-FU. Um, so, it, I mean, it was brutal. It was like an eight-hour infusion, and they, they come in and explain the side effects. But then they told me, you know, it's stage four colorectal, right? So I, I just sort of had this weird idea in my head when they said, this gives you maybe a 10% chance of survival. Um, you will definitely go bald. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was like, okay, so so this is a hair loss drug with a side effect of curing cancer, possibly. Oh, wow. Uh, that's, that's all this is. Like, you know, um, it's, yeah, it's really, you can get into diminishing returns uh, and, and quite weird traumatic stuff. Um, when I, I think with 
cancer is weird because I really like the philosophy of making it livable, just mm-hmm. making, just living with it. Because it, the thing that struck me, it's, it's an all or nothing philosophy that we have. So as the patient, a cancer patient has to calculate literally the lowest bar possible, which is this better than death, right? <laughs> so you're dealing, so you're dealing with insane things, um, neuropathy in your hands and feet that are permanent. But you're like, well, is this better than death? And if we had treatments that were more, eh, you won't die, you just are a person with cancer, I think that would be much easier for people yeah, um, to I deal mean, with. In, in some ways, so some of, the, some of the treatments, you know, even some of the very modern treatments, they still come with pretty horrendous side effects. I think trying to find strategies that are more based on control. So the, the team at the Moffitt, they did a study in prostate cancer. So it's using a drug called abiraterone, which doesn't have such severe side effects as the, the combination that you were on, which is, you know, brutal, man. It's, uh, you know, props I mean, it was, it was fun. I don't know. It was <laughs> yeah, like, my, I... um, my friends went through, my friend uh, who I talk a bit about in the book went through late stage bowel cancer. I went to the hospital with her for a, her chemo once and it's like, oh God, this just looks... Well, <laughs> and it's also, it's just the, the chemo ward in itself could be, I mean, more, I was just like, the thing, and I've talked about this a lot, is um, I was across from the children's hospital. I could see them through the window <laughs> and they've got, I've, and I've, this sounds so brutal. No one has to laugh or agree with me here, but the it's the weirdest feeling ever being jealous of kids with cancer because I mean, they get they're, clowns, right? Well, th- no, they got video games. Taylor Swift is coming by for a basketball game <laughs> and I'm, and I'm, I'm playing like checkers with a Titanic survivor and with, you know, um, every now and then antiques roadshow would be on TV and oh, living the dream. It was a yeah. horrible, I mean, it could have, it could have been all right, but you know, yeah, so I mean that that is like that's not even about the drugs. That's just about how you how you treat people as as humans. But yeah, yeah with, with, yeah. with the drugs, there's diff, different ways of using the drugs we've got. So the the prostate cancer trial, it's like the men ended up on less drug overall, even though they were being treated for many many more years. So it's like there are smarter ways to use the drugs that we've got for for absolute sure. But yeah, it's it's all about like really understanding and it's people are really bad at dealing with risk and particularly around this because yeah it's it's horrible you're making calculations that you never ever want to have to make in your life and and also you've got this narrative of like this is the cure this is the treatment you know there's this new drug if only you could get this brand new drug then then that's going to be the thing and um it's quite a sad paper you know as far as a scientific paper can be sad that did a survey of patients who were in clinical trials with late stage cancer for these very experimental drugs and sort of asking them, like, do you think this is going to cure you? And, you know, working for a cancer charity, you're like, no, people understand that these are, these are clinical trials. There's, you know, you might get an increase in survival, but it's not a cure. But when you actually talk to a lot of the people on the trial, even though they've been informed about it, they're like, yeah, I, I think this is going to cure me. I'm going to be a lucky one. Um, so it's, it's, just the whole psychology of it Oof. is it's difficult. And, um, yeah, how, how we talk about it, how we think about it, how we even start conversations about palliative care. Because does that feel like giving up? But actually, you know, if you do palliative care right, it actually extends survival. You know, so there's, there's benefits there that aren't just like, let's treat and treat and treat and treat until we can't treat anymore. Well, and yeah, and the, the you know, the battle analogies... Of, of you're fighting something right, and, right. and it's like, no, man, I'm, I'm watching antiques roadshow. Really? I'm, <laughs> I'm not, this is not a, an epic battle. I'm, there's an IV tube happening, but, uh, whatever, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. The it's, it's very, very stigmatized as this, uh, yeah, and the language, you know, the language of the battle, it's like, well, if you if you lost your battle, it's because you didn't fight hard enough. I really want to kick back against that. Very, you should have wanted hard. it more. Should have wanted it more. Yeah, you know, you know. Every... <laughs> Did you do yeah. your affirmations every day? You know, then you'd have then you'd have got better. It's like, no, this is just bullshit. Yeah, the the um, the nurses, the infusion nurses wore these scrubs. And on the back of the scrubs, it said, infusing hope. 
is what they said. And I was like, God, I hope not. I really, wow. I really need that. I'm going to need, need I'm going to need those. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to need those drugs. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's pretty brutal. Uh-oh. Yeah. Well, well, I'm glad, um, I'm glad your, your, uh, friend is, is all right. That's great. Yeah. She's doing okay. She's doing okay. Cool. Now, so what, uh, what's your take on all this stuff with CRISPR and everything happening now? I mean, we're, do you think we're in a new era of research? Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very excited by the possibility that technologies like CRISPR open up for, like, understanding the genome. So sort of as a geneticist, I'm really, really excited by CRISPR as, like, a research tool that you can start, like, at scale, chopping up the genome, seeing, seeing like, what does this bit do? What does that bit do? So that kind of stuff is really, really exciting. And I think when it comes to, like, understanding how do some of these genetic changes drive cancer, that's really really useful because that's certainly what we don't really have much of a handle on you know there's there's six billion letters of dna in the human genome there's about twenty thousand ish genes and we've just fixated on them and there's a whole load of other stuff in there that we don't really know what it does so using crispr as like a research tool to kind of chop and snip and and see what's going on i think it's really exciting in terms of like actually treating cancer the stuff that i find exciting is in using it to manipulate immune cells. So this is like stuff called like CAR T therapy. So these killer T cells, and you can genetically engineer them to seek out and destroy cancer cells. And I think that that kind of stuff is pretty cool. Like immunotherapy is really exciting. I think it's massively right now, massively overhyped. Like we're kind of in the in the dip coming off the hype curve, because there's still a lot to do to really make it really make it work. But yeah, that that kind of thing, if we can genetically engineer super soldiers in the immune system i think that's uh, that's really quite exciting well let's talk a little bit because we've got a few minutes left but let's talk a little bit about the problems with research and the specificity of research because there's two things that sort of struck at, that stood out to me from your book firstly there was that quote we're very good at treating cancer in mice <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, mice, um, where we've got mice nailed, we can like if you're a mouse, yeah, we can yeah. treat you. Yeah. Um, and then there was the, the the big sex difference in that so much cancer research is on male cells and how differently they might behave, and even even down to a genetic thing. There was something you mentioned about the difference in male and female birth rates. Oh and, yeah. And how that well, might relate could, to cancer. That really surprised me. Sorry, what were you going to say, po- Jesse? Is it possible that the the cure could be figuring out how to turn people into mice? <laughs> because you then, I mean, maybe, maybe we're looking at it the wrong way completely. Oh, my God. I had right. sort of slight slight tangent that I did uh, when I was talking about my first <laughs> first book, Herding Hemingway's Cats, which is all about like how genes work. And there's a whole section in there about like the control switches that turn genes on and off. And basically, like we have pretty much the same genes as a chimp, but we have different control switches, which is why chimps are chimps and humans are humans. And I gave this talk at Google, and afterwards, one of the questions, someone put their hand up. It's like, oh my god, it's an engineer. Like, oh god, and he was like how many switches would we have to change to turn a chimp into a human? <laughs> it's like, oh no, I feel like I'm single-handedly responsible for Google's next terrible project. <laughs> oh yeah. Is that, um, I don't know whether that's like a Cinderella pro- Yeah, is, is that Cinderella or is that Roald Dahl's The Witches? I'm not sure which direction we're going in. Oh God. Um, oh yeah, yeah, that, that's humans into mice, yeah. So, um, would that, would that be yeah. the secret? You go human to mouse, then treat them, and then put them back and to humans back again. And then back into human. Yeah, that, that would work. But it's, it is such an important thing. So loads and loads of cancer research is done on young male mice. So there's two problems there. So the first one is that they're male, and cancers are available to women as well. Uh, and, um, and people of non-binary identity too. So it's like, you know, we need to find some non-binary mice too. And right. then uh, the other problem is the word young So most cancers arise in older people and are treated in older people. And so much research is done on like six week old male mice that their their tissues are nothing like older human tissue. So it's like, yeah, you can treat cancers in this kind of young buff tissue environment. 
But when you try and translate that to older human tissue, it's just it just doesn't work because the environment's completely different within those tissues. Right, there so, are some really surprising yeah. age effects that you mentioned in the book, including this statistic that was at 18 to 36, everyone is roughly equally likely to get any disease. Yeah. No matter what your environmental factor is. So being being young is really suppressive for cancer. So that the risk of cancer really starts to go up after your sort of late fifties, early sixties. And then so sort Jesse, of various... you really beat the odds there, man. Yeah, you know, you're ahead of your yeah. time. Um, sure, sure. You know, of course yeah. it's it's not unheard of, obviously, but um the, the risk does go up significantly. And there's like various evolutionary reasons for that that I talk quite a bit about in the book. But yeah, what we we only look at like why do people get cancer? And we don't look at like, what is so suppressive about this younger tissue? Like what keeps your tissues young and beautiful that suppresses these these damaged bad cells? So uh, I think there's some really interesting stuff about prevention and the emergence of cancer. And even if we could just push it like kind of 5, 10, 15 years on average out, that would still push a lot of cancers out, out of people's 50s and 60s and 40s into later life. So I think, you know, there's some some interesting stuff there. Yeah. Why people don't get cancer is just as important. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if you've got billions yeah. and billions of cells in your body and most of them don't become cancer cells, like, why is that? And we just fixate on what's gone wrong rather than, you know, researchers, what's the point of studying healthy tissue? You want to study the disease tissue. So, you know, we don't really think about studying healthy tissue and, and that kind of environment in the tissue. So there was this really bizarre statistic as well, though, related to age that was after the age of 90, you said in the book, then suddenly the risk of cancer starts to decline. Yeah, that's wild. If you make it to 95 without cancer, you're, you're probably good. Um, so again, I think studying, studying centenarians, there's a few people doing it now because they've suddenly realised that if you make it to that age there is something quite unusual about you and you are remarkably healthy. So, you know, what, what is it about these people? I think it's, it's really fascinating. But, but that's not as if some switch gets flipped at 95. It's the fact that they are alive yeah. at that point means exactly. they were already this person who was... Exactly. They've know. got that far. So why did they get this far? And, uh, and what can we learn from that? And the same thing with like looking at different animals that are more or less susceptible to cancer than humans. Well, our, our cancer risk in the animal kingdom is kind of somewhere in the middle, actually. So what can we learn from animals that are remarkably resistant to cancer? And are there strategies that we could actually translate into our human bodies? I think is, is really interesting. Eating sharks. All right, we're back. Not eating sharks. <laughs> eating sharks, no. smoke cigarettes, everybody. That is Rebel Cell by Kat Arney. No. She, um, can, I, can I ask you a weird existential question that is related? What do you think, because uh, I, I think about this all the time as someone that had cancer and wanted it gone. Do you, this is such a dark, weird question, but um, when do you think this goes too far? The, if, if, let's say, we, we figured out every genetic marker, um, we could push it all back, we could... Uh, you can, you know, magic pill when you're a kid, you know, at, at what point does it backfire? Like the Albert Brooks book about uh, a yeah, future is, where no it, one ever dies? Yeah. It, you know I'm, what I mean? Like, yeah. it is, like it, when do we have too much survival? And I figure if anyone can ask this question, I can. Otherwise, it's, it's sociopathic. <laughs> but um, I, <laughs> I do think about it. I think about, you know, if, if we really, really nailed this, is that a good thing to do? Yeah, so I sort of end the book with a comment from, I went to speak to Peter Campbell, who's this amazing genetics researcher um, at the Sanger Institute. And I was like, well, what's, what's the end game here? Like, what's the end point of all this research? And he sort of, looked, it was like, no one's ever really asked that. And he said, well, and he's, uh, he was like, I guess it's that you live long enough to die of something else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, but... The, the, my my biggest issue, and I, it's you know everyone has to die of something, right? Um, I'm not one of these weird transhumanists that like we're all going to live to 500. It's like yeah, human lifespan I think probably tops out somewhere uh, without a lot of work. But yeah, we everyone has to die of something. No one is immortal, and so my real thing is like, well, how can we understand how to give people longer, healthier lifespan? So it's it's people shouldn't be dying of cancer in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. You know, that's 
and and people shouldn't be spending if they do develop cancer shouldn't be spending short times in absolute misery on treatments that are not going to help them prolong their survival so you know yeah we've all got to die of something i'd rather it wasn't cancer sure sure i guess more of a more of a hit by a bus type situation yeah you know, I, this, you all, know. All, all die in our sleep surrounded by our families and, and yeah. or in my case you know because i'm never intending to have children probably dying alone being eaten by a spaniel that's uh... <laughs> well well this is why i try to watch people sleep is they want someone they want someone there when they, they die in their sleep i try to stare at people sleeping as i don't know what i'm talking about your honor in my defense she was supposed to die that night yeah <laughs> <laughs> This is really dark, but it's one of the most romantic. This is really, really dark. I'm sorry. One of the most romantic things my partner's ever said to me. He's a little bit younger than I am. And he was like, I just really hope that you die before me because, you know, then you won't be sad when I die. It's like, oh, God. Well, no, that's that's extremely romantic. I don't don't think it's that. that, And then he farted and said, What's for dinner? So, (laughs) right, right. Well, you gotta. That's that's love. You gotta have a catchphrase. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he he looked at a camera that wasn't there and said, what's for what's for dinner? And <laughs> then just like, played an applause sound on his phone, like, what's going on now? Yeah, doink, 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 doink. <laughs> He's always doing this. So, um, yeah, wow, wow. Hmm. That was dark. <laughs> well, anyway. No, I just mean, like, like when I read, uh, my, my favorite chapter in your book was Game Over, which, you know, we shouldn't spoil because people should, people should get the book. But um, yeah, I was just very struck at the different the different takes on just as much as um, I guess just as much as having cancer, living with cancer, how nebulous it should be, how nebulous being cured of cancer is. You know, when are you considered cured or like it, or something like that? And I I guess the thing that strikes me is we already are figuring out how to live with it. We just maybe don't know that. Mm-hmm. So that narrative shift has to happen. Um, yeah, would be my takeaway of the of the thesis. Uh-huh. Well, um, yeah, and that's kind of <laughs> I always like to end my books with a bit of like a bit of philosophy. I'm not very philosophical, but it is what does a cure actually mean? And I think sort of end with the idea, you know, this idea of you know living with it, chasing it round and round in evolutionary circles. In some cases, yeah, driving it to extinction or detecting it early and, and removing it, or um, you know, some combination of drugs or immunotherapy that does work and gets rid of it. But yeah, you know, it's what does a cure really look like, and what does it mean? I think is our is our next frontier as more people are living with cancer and and are living after cancer and are living for a long time with it. So, you know, our our relationship as humans to this disease that's been with us for millions and millions of years is is we're now in a position to change it. When can we get to a place as a species where cancer can fart and ask us what's for dinner? (laughs) You know what I mean? That level of comfort. That's what we want. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Living with it and like tending the garden. I mean, I did. I did ask because I was asking a lot of evolutionary biologists about this. I was like, "Can we evolve our way out of cancer? Like, can we push our lifespans out and and move the sort of cancer boundary out?" And they're like, "Yeah, evolution's not that quick. Sorry." So I think we are going to have to learn to live with it and learn to live with it better and longer. Well, that seems well, seems like a nice way to close things out. The book is called Rebel Cell. Cancer, evolution, and the new science of life's oldest betrayal. It drops. It, it drops at the end of September, right? Or the towards the end of September. Twenty uh, ninth of September. Or if if you want an advanced copy from me, Venmo five dollars. <laughs> That's to Jesse Case. There's watermarked, but it's a great book. Um, I'm kidding. I'm. Com- That's not even my. I don't have Venmo. Don't do any of that. Get the book. This book's great. It's out on the twenty ninth. Yeah, and there's a, there's a little website, rebelcellbook.com, and there's links to all the US places where you can pre-order it. So please, please pre-order it, because then when it actually comes out, then it looks like loads and loads of people have all bought it at once, and that's that will make my mum and dad very happy. Yeah, this is, I think this is true. I'm only realising in recent years how important that is with the way algorithms work on these websites now. Same with when our comedian friends put out a new album or anything like that. Just pre-orders are key because, like, even if you're thinking about, oh, I'm, I'm definitely going to get this book at some point when it comes out. If you pre-order it now, then the day it comes out, it spikes in the charts, and then more people see it, and you get to. And exactly. Cat's very good book gets read by more people. So let's do that, people. We'll put yeah. a link in the show notes to rebelcellbook.com, and that has all the UK, and we've got. Australia 
a lot of Australian listeners and other worldwide listeners as well. Does that have all of the international links too? Um, not yet, but I can. Uh, okay. Well, um, can I do a quick plug for my podcast as well? Absolutely. Please, please. So uh, I host a podcast called Genetics Unzipped, and we have stories from the world of genes, genomes, and DNA. So we have like narrative stories about history of genetics, and we have interviews with really cool scientists working in, in the cutting edge of genetics. So geneticsunzipped.com, and uh, do go and check us out. Yeah, we've, that, there'll be some cross-pollination from our podcast to this one, I'm sure, or to that one. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's fascinating. Rebel Yell is great, you guys. <laughs> uh, or Rebel Cells. No, I was so, so sorry. I literally, it's been an, I've been singing that song as the book title me too, like, me all too. day. Well, I'm going to presume that was intentional, right? Uh, yeah, kind of. Actually, it's sort of some Easter eggs in there. If you know your, like, 90s British indie bands, there are a few kind of little music Easter eggs sprinkled through the book. So, um... If you can, if you can spot them, there's some like '90s indie band references. Oh, we should have. Well, the, yeah, the one that said "Get chemo like the common people" I thought was really <laughs> was really weird. And um, wow, yeah. yeah, scientists can't be swayed. But oh. <laughs> there's one chapter just called "Woohoo." I was surprised at that. Yeah. That was yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, chapter two. Yeah, cool. that's right. That's what it's just um, called chapter two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kat, is there anything anything else to plug? Uh, you can you've got Twitter and all that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, you come and say hi to me on Twitter. I'm at cat underscore arnie k a t underscore a r n e y. Uh, Genetics Unzipped is on Twitter. We're at Genetics Unzip, and yeah, rebelcellbook.com is the website. And yeah, it would be lovely to hear from you and uh, tell all your friends about the book. We we will yeah, and listeners do the same. You can find us at probablyscience.com at Probably Science, individually at Andy T. Wood, at Jesse Case, at Matt Kirshen. Also listen to Jesse versus Cancer if you want more cancer talk and you can follow the progression of Jesse's treatment and mood over the course of a few years. <laughs> and mood. Yeah. <laughs> Be like, yeah. It's, it's quite the journey, really. You can also, we've, got, we've had quite a few people join our podcast late and go like, hey, I've listened to the back catalogue and you're like, oh, you're about to get to the bit where Jesse gets very ill. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's okay. And then you, know. and then you get to the other side of it. It's quite weird to be listening to that when you can just Google the, oh, okay, still around. That's good. That's yeah, every, good. Well, everyone loves a good arc. Yeah. You know? I'm, I'm, I just broke my toe a few days ago. I just oh, saw so that on Twitter. I broke my toe two months ago. Well, that's why I did, I did it, so I could commiserate. Like, I, did it, I did it myself. Off yeah. mic, I'll talk to you about my broken toe journey. But uh, Kat, again, thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, everyone get Rebel Cell. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure, guys. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Kat. Yeah. 